Just wanted to give a brief word of introduction, even though it doesn't need it, but there might be some people who are, uh, today, who are here today who haven't been here long. But uh, this weekend we have a joyous wedding of, I guess it's now Mr. and Mrs. Russell and Lisa Moore. I mean, Russell uh, Sorch, sorry. My bad. Uh, although Dave Moore would have been smiling big time had he heard me say that. Um, anyway, they, uh, for the wedding, and so uh, Brooke Taylor was here in town. He and Marlene are back with us. We're so thankful they were able to be here for the wedding. And uh, when he was here, I thought, well, let's just invite him again to uh, bring the word to us. So I've invited again Brooke Taylor, who served here for like six and a half years, seven years. How long was it? Seven and a half, sorry. Uh, seven and a half years as our assistant pastor. And uh, we thank you for coming, Brooke, and he will now be bringing the word to us. So I don't know if that's really bad. That's probably really bad. So um, we'll uh, we'll do our best. I'll try to stand close to the pulpit. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn back to Genesis chapter one, and we'll be looking at those verses that we read earlier uh, about uh, the creation account. But we'll be looking specifically at the creation of man, and looking at the at the the question today: What is uh, our identity? Uh, as, uh, as people, what is our identity specifically as men here today? For those of you who are men, but for all of us, what is our identity in Christ? Uh, we uh, certainly have a very significant calling, and we want to uh, look at that this morning. We're going to begin by looking uh, at uh, verse 26, so you can put your finger there. It's often a common question for people to ask, what is the meaning of life? Or, why am I here or where am I going? And that's a, that's a very good question. And, and men and women and philosophers and theologians have been debating this for centuries. One, one particular songwriter tried to very helpfully and clearly sum up for us what our identity and purpose is. And I hope this helps you and, and maybe gives you some purpose and understanding as well. He writes these, these very careful and thought-provoking words. He says, we're here because we're here. 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 Because we're here, we're here. So helpful and enlightening to us all. I mean, I could really sit down right about now and just move on to something else. Um, but depending on who you talk to, there could be a number of, of answers. There could be a number of explanations as to uh, what the proper response to such a question would be. And my current purpose is to change out a battery. So we'll do that very quickly. This does not count in my time limit this morning. So if you are keeping time, just be aware of that. All right. Depending on who you talk to, there could be hundreds of answers. In fact, a recent study had shown that young teen boys and adult men, some even as, as old as I am, spend their entire days in life searching for the meaning of life, and they find purpose and they find identity in fighting battles, conquering kingdoms, defeating evil, and depending on the person, at times rescuing a beautiful lady. And the sad thing is, is they do it all from the comfort of their couches with their thumbs as they play video games. Video games are the way that many of us try to live vicariously for purpose. We don't have purpose, or at least we don't think we have purpose in our life, so we find it through something else. 
But that particular quest that these men and boys tend to head towards is not all that surprising. Because while what they're doing is a complete and utter waste of time, the narrative of Scripture tells us that the meaning of life is something specific, but it also explains for us that there is an internal insatiable desire to be a part of purpose, to be a part of a battle, to be a part of a kingdom, to be a part of a prince rescuing a lady, a bride, and life. The problem is not the pursuit of those things. The problem is how they seek to obtain those things. Genesis to Revelation tells us of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, his story throughout history. And it begins, as we read earlier in Genesis, in a garden. And surprisingly enough, if you fast forward to Revelation, it ends in one as well. It starts with a man in a garden, and surprisingly enough, it ends with a man in a garden. Scripture unfolds how we get from a garden that is eventually corrupted by sin to the final crushing of the head of the serpent by the seed of the woman. Most of us in this room have probably struggled from time to time with purpose and meaning. Even as Christians, we often struggle with those same questions. And some of you may seemingly have it all together, while the rest of us are probably too embarrassed to say that I don't know if I really get everything. We struggle with identity and purpose. We struggle with function and future. Not because the answers aren't there for us, but because we often look in the wrong places to find them. And so some of us then are trying to find our purpose and our identity and our function and our meaning and another person, perhaps a man or a woman. Some of us are trying to find it in worldly success and riches. Some of us are trying to find it in sex or alcohol. Or some of us have just given up trying to find meaning and we're on the verge of ending our life altogether. But the Word of God in these opening verses of Genesis gives us purpose, it gives us meaning, it gives us identity and function, but more importantly, it directs us to a future and to another man who will do what you and I are able or unable to do. So if you look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we're going to see some things in these opening verses about God, his creation, his special relationship with Adam and his relationship with you and with me. First of all, I want you to see that Adam is created in verse 26. He is more than a man. He is more than a man. He says there, uh, God does, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Moses describes the account of creation for us in great detail here in these opening chapters. But we need to remember when we read Genesis that there are two things that is going on here that Moses is seeking to do. He is not seeking to counteract an understanding of the evolving uh, theology of how the world was created. That's not Moses' purpose. Moses' purpose, I think, is twofold. One, he is describing the process of creation through the inspiration of the Spirit. God is speaking to him and giving him insight that he would have no idea how all these things happen. But the second thing that uh, that Moses is doing is that he is communicating a worldview and a message through that same spirit that is equally as authoritative and important for us. He describes Adam here as being made in God's image. 
Verbally and thematically in Genesis, humanity, Adam and Eve, are the pinnacle of the created order. There is a uniqueness in the way that they were created. All other aspects of creation are brought forth in the pattern, God spoke and it was. But when you get to the creation of people, the word that is used there to describe God's creation process is bara, which signifies and gives for us a sense of creativity, intentionality. And it shouldn't be surprising that the most words in the account of the creation are reserved for day six. The description of Adam is important. And God describes him as being in the imago dei, the image of God. And that terminology gives us illumination into what Adam's purpose is. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 5, when we see the, uh, the genealogy of Adam listed in verse 3, Moses writes these words. He says, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. We read that and all of us understand exactly what Moses is saying. He's saying that Seth is Adam's son. And when we hear that, we also fast forward ourselves to Luke, where in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Luke starts with Jesus and ends with Adam, and he describes him as God's son. Adam is being created here with an intimately close relationship with God as the Imago Dei, as God's son. And in a biblical context, being a son gives you identity and it gives you a future. There was no such thing in ancient Jewish times as college planning classes. No one went to go visit an advisor at a university to say, hey, what should I do? Should I be a doctor or should I be a veterinarian? No one asked those questions. No, because the, the son did what the father did before him. He imaged the father. So Jesus was a carpenter because Joseph was a carpenter. Peter and James and John were fishermen because their fathers were fishermen. You did what your father did. You imaged your father. You imaged him in character. You imaged him in calling. You imaged him in identity, in future. Your makeup was all about this lineage, who you came from. You even had an inheritance as a result of being a son of your father. Adam was created in the same way. He was created in the image of God. He was God's son, and thus he had an identity as God's son. He had a future and an inheritance as God's son, and his calling to the world was to image God in the way that he lived. Adam has a kingdom paternity that he is created with. But we also see in the rest of chapter 1 and the opening verses of chapter 2 that God also gives Adam further identity. This amago dei gives us further understanding for who Adam and Eve are created to be. The term likeness talks not only about Adam's lineage, but it also reveals something about their regal status as human beings. In ancient Egypt, the kings, the pharaohs of Egypt were described as and talked about as if they were sons of the gods. Their identity as kings was wrapped up that they were the son of Ra or the son of another god. God created man, Adam and Eve, to advance his mission, the Missio Dei. 
And the missio day for God was to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's been his mission from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And God created Adam and Eve for that purpose. They were to be his vice regents, his regal representatives, or in a sense, they were a prince and a princess in a kingdom that was created to advance the mission of God. They were the kings and queens of creation. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. We learn later in the text that they were to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Words associated with power and authority and a conquering and advancing kingdom. Naming of the animals shows Adam's authority over his kingdom that he is put in and ruling over. And these words remind us and give us a glimpse of what we already know of where we are in redemptive history, that there is coming another man who is also a king, who also rules with dominion and power and authority. And so Adam and Eve are created to advance and to bring about the mission of God, advancing the agenda of God for his glory. God creates the kingdom of God in the garden, puts at its head a man, and Adam is to maintain God's order in the garden. He is to protect it, advance it. Now, that may sound somewhat odd when we read this text, but when we flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 17, we know that that is something that God specifically said was the function of the kings. The kings of Israel were to know, to read, to remember, to do, to protect the law of God and to advance the kingdom across the earth. And so Adam is a foretaste of what we continue to see as a repetitive pattern throughout Israel's history. Adam was a kingdom prince. But I want you to flip over to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, where God says that, the man may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve are royalty. They are God's children. But they are not gods or even kings unto themselves alone. Adam is a vice regent, but he is also a participant in the kingdom of God. He has to listen. They are not to rule independently of God, but they, through obedience and reflection, rule with God. They're to hear God's word. They're to obey God's word. They're to maintain order. And Adam does this as he daily dwells with God in the garden, as he listens to his voice, as he hears his word, as he follows in obedience. There are prohibitions and there are permissions in God's kingdom. And it's interesting that Adam is permitted to eat of any tree except one. There is vast permission and freedom in the kingdom of God. There is only one prohibition. And Adam was to pursue God's mission, to continue to perpetuate God's word, and to see that everyone, whoever else they may be, would know what God's desire was and to pass that along as participants and citizens of the kingdom of God. Adam was a kingdom participant as well as a king and as well as a son. And the last part here, which I think is the most interesting, in verses 4 to 15, we learn something very unique about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not created as gods. And unlike Mormonism, they don't become gods. Adam and Eve are created to commune with God. 
Now, a lot of people, particularly some of, some of uh, maybe our environmentalist Christian friends, like to point to this text and suggest that, that the purpose of Moses' writing is to perpetuate an, an environmentalist agenda. Adam was a gardener, and therefore we all should be gardeners. I mean, that's a problem, because I'm a lousy gardener. But I don't think that's at all what God is saying here. Now, please understand me. We have a duty and a responsibility to protect the created order because it's God's and because we are to care for God's creation. But I don't think that what God is doing here is suggesting that Adam is, a, is a, uh, an early gardener and therefore we should emulate his stature. The words in Hebrew here mean so much more than gardening. In verse 15, God says to Adam and Eve to work and to keep the garden. Several theologians have have surmised that the Garden of Eden is a prototype of the temple of God. It's a picture of the temple, and we see that picture repeated in the tabernacle and in the Jerusalem temple, and we finally see in the book of Revelation at that final eschatological temple of God. Now, we don't have time to look at all the evidence this morning, but I want to highlight a couple of things for you. If you consider what you know about the temple and the tabernacle and Revelation, the Garden of Eden was entered in from the east, which is the same direction you would enter the temple or the tabernacle from. Outside the garden were cherubim, as we know, to guard it, to keep Adam and Eve out. And of course, if you go into the tabernacle, the temple, there will be pictures of cherubim all over that place, signifying that you are entering the throne room of God. And these fiery images were there to keep us out or to, to protect us from the overpowering presence of God. There was a river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden that nurtured all of the land. And Ezekiel, uh, the the prophet, talks about the the final temple of God will have a a river flowing out of it and bringing life to all of the nations. There is a a tree in that garden of life. And, of course, there is a menorah, a tree-like figure in the temple, in the tabernacle, that points us ahead to the tree of life in the, uh, the final kingdom. In verse 12, there are all these, these, uh, these words and descriptions of, of bedellium and stone that are used specifically in the construction of the temple later in, in Jerusalem. And in verse three, uh, chapter 8, verse 3, God describes himself as walking through the garden, which is the same terminology that God uses to describe himself walking through the tabernacle. I say all that to help you understand that the words work and keep here for Adam are associated together in four other places of Scripture. And in each of those places, they are directly related to the priestly function of the priests working and keeping the temple. So that in each of those instances, they refer to priestly duties. I believe that Adam was created here in this garden to manage a garden temple as a priest, to protect it to keep evil out, to mediate the law and the glory of God to the rest of whatever human population comes about. Adam was a priest king, a role that we see a lot more of in Scripture. That's quite a picture. He's a son, he's a king, a prince, he is a participant, he is a priest. Adam had purpose and function, he had a role. Adam was created to be a son who would listen to the word of his father and image him in the world. He had a future inheritance and identity. Adam was a king who would promote and advance the kingdom of God, the Missio Dei, so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. 
Adam was a citizen in the kingdom, so he was to listen to the gracious and loving word of his creator who would always provide for his own. And Adam was a priest who was to listen to the word of God, instruct others in the commands of God, and keep uncleanness out of the temple of God. But Adam in chapter 3 becomes less than a man. He becomes subhuman. Adam failed. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Adam did not fulfill what God had called him and created him to be. Instead of living like a son and imaging God, Adam and Eve acted for their own sake and acted like orphans, not trusting their father to provide for them, but instead taking and grasping for what he did not give them. Instead of acting like a king and exercising dominion over creation, he gives up his authority and instead listens to the creation itself, a sneaky snake who Adam should have had under his feet to begin with. Instead of acting like a citizen of God's kingdom, he wanted to be a ruler of his own domain. Rather than expanding the divine presence, they're expelled from the divine presence. Rather than listening to and trusting God's word, they doubt God's word. They doubt his provision, and they trust in him themselves. Rather than obeying, they choose and would rather be filled with food than to listen to the word of their father. And instead of serving as priests and keeping unclean things out of the garden... They welcome the evil serpent and they cause chaos to enter the garden. They don't find wisdom by listening to God. Instead, they want to have wisdom on their own terms. The man who was not created to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, instead wanted his stomach to be full. And as Russell Moore says, would rather be fed than fathered. Now that pattern of appetites and sinful temptations is not unique to any of us we act and respond in much the same way. And because Adam sinned, he loses his unique regal status. Paul tells us that Adam is our head. He's our representative. So his sin becomes our sin. He sins, we become sinners. And we're born sinners because of Adam's fall. In fact, our entire identity and Adam's entire identity was changed because of his sin. Instead of being sons, Scripture tells us we're orphans. Jesus calls us children of the devil. That's a pretty big change. Instead of being princes, the, the scripture says that we're now slaves to another kingdom, slaves to sin. Instead of being participants in the kingdom of God, we're now, as Romans says, we're enemies of God. And instead of being priests that worship God, we now become idol worshipers who worship anything and everything we can get our hands on. And we continue to sin, we continue to reject God's authority. We continue to run from God. We continue to listen to the voice of the serpent rather than listening to the voice of God. And we continue to rule over things and pursue our own glory rather than to pursue God's glory. And so like Adam, we've exchanged our identity for a sinful, marred identity. And like Esau before us, we sell our birthright for a bunch of garbage-tasting stew that in the end makes our stomachs churn once we have it. It's no wonder we're looking for meaning and purpose. As men, as fathers, as young men, or as ladies here, we're looking for purpose. We've just been searching for it ever since the garden in all the wrong places. And instead of looking to it from our creator, instead we try to continue to be our own king, our own God, and we run from the one who made us. Well, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, tells us those great words that we often call uh, the proto-evangel. The opening verses of Genesis not only gives us the great chasm that disrupts the created order, but God in his grace gives us the gospel 
a glimpse of it in chapter 3, verse 15. We see God's provision, his plan for redemption, when he says that a man, a seed of the woman, will come and crush the head of that evil serpent. Jesus becomes a, a repetitive pattern an example of what happened before, only this time he does something different. The seed of the woman we see throughout Scripture battles constantly in the Old Testament, this seed of the serpent. I think we see it most prominently in the life of David. When David is called out as, as, by his father to go and to give his brothers food, he goes out, he feeds the, the people of Israel. He goes out, and then he then stands as a representative for Israel. If he loses, all of Israel loses. He stands in front of the representative of evil, Goliath, and he strikes him down and cuts off his head. That picture, that, that image of, of David's function, standing as a type of Messiah who fears the word of God more than he fears the word of Goliath, who stands before the evil one, who before this evil tyrant, David does crush the head of a serpent with a single stone, and shows the triumph of God's messianic king of what it will look like. And nearly 1,000 years later, in a little town in, in Israel, we see again a seed of the woman who is born, and who this time God comes and takes on flesh to be able to be a representative and priest for the rest of us. In the Gospel of Matthew, if you read through that, you see that Jesus recapitulates the entire history of Adam and Israel. It's very enlightening when you read through that with an understanding of what was going on in the Old Testament. Adam, in the perfection of Eden, called God's son, was tempted, disobeyed God, and Adam was exiled, just as God said he would be. And then Israel is called out of Egypt in bondage as his own son, as God's son. God leads them and takes them to a promised land. He takes them through a baptism in the, in the Red Sea. He takes them into the wilderness where they're tempted, where they fail. And God says through Moses that they'll be exiled and they eventually are exiled. Just like God said they would be. And Jesus in Matthew is taken to Egypt just like Israel before him, called out as God's son, taken through the baptism in the Jordan, called God's son by the presence of the Spirit, taken to the wilderness by the Spirit. He's tempted just like Israel and Adam. He's tempted by that same evil serpent. But this time, the evil serpent doesn't question God's word, did God really say. This time, the evil serpent questions his identity and says, if you're really the son of God. But unlike Adam, who never hungered, and unlike Israel, who had all the food that they needed, Jesus would rather be obedient than be fed. Jesus would rather be obedient than eat after 40 days of fasting. He would rather wait for God to exalt him than to exalt himself. He would rather trust and obey the word of his father than to grasp for the authority himself. Jesus does not sin. He defeats the ancient serpent. He deals a crushing blow there, and he will finish the job on the cross. Jesus succeeds there because he remembers God's word and he obeys it. He looks to his father and the spirit's power for strength and self-control in temptation, and he rules by his word over evil where Adam and Israel and you and me fail every day. Jesus never sins, and yet he was exiled on the cross as if he was a sinner. 
He's exiled for the sin of other people. Jesus does, stands in our place. He obeys the word of his Father. He stands in our place then and takes the justice of something that we should have absorbed. He undergoes this final exile, not for his own sin, but for the sin of Adam and for Israel and for you. The man who never sinned, who loved so freely, who made Jerusalem a town, John MacArthur said, that didn't even have so much as a sniffle for three years. He made that place practically perfect, and yet he incurred the wrath of God for you and for me. He undergoes what we deserve. Through his perfect and holy life, through his sacrificial, obedient death on the cross, by the evidence of his glorious resurrection, God declared for the world to see Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus was the rightful obedient son. He listened to his father. He was the rightful king who exercised dominion and authority over creation. He was the rightful citizen who advances the mission of God above all things. And he was the rightful and high true priest who stands before God on our behalf. Jesus was a true man. On our own, in our sinful condition, we're fools. We are fools that are walking away as enemies of God. But the scripture tells us that our identity, when we find our identity in someone else, we become more than fools. You and I can never get back what was lost. What we lost in the garden, what we continue to reject every day, we can never achieve through perfection what we are called to do. We will forever be separated from God. Not sons, not citizens, not as priests. We will be strangers and people without God and without hope in this world. But Jesus invites us to find a new identity in him. He invites us to die to self and by faith to become a new kind of person, a better man. Through faith, united with Jesus, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection, both spiritually and a foretaste of something yet to come. But salvation doesn't just simply end with a ticket to heaven. Everything that was true of Jesus now becomes true of us. His identity becomes our identity. Outside of Christ, we lack everything. Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus so that in Christ, if you are identified with him, you become joint heirs with him. All the promises of God becomes yours through Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, we lack everything that we're supposed to be and we're fools. But in Christ, we become so much more. Scripture says that he takes the proud and he humbles the proud and he takes the foolish to profound the wise. And you look like fools to the world as you follow a king that you cannot see. But you are more than fools in the eyes of God. Our new identity in Christ has both benefits for the present but also for the future. It has implications for the present but also for the future. Whether you're a man or a woman, a teen, a father, you have a purpose and identity in who you are in Jesus Christ. And I just want to highlight them very quickly for you. First of all, you are God's son, Romans 8, 4 tells us. In Christ, you are now God's son. Satan continues, just as he did to Jesus, to cause you to, to doubt your identity in Jesus Christ. But you are God's son. Even though he challenges you to forget and to live as if it is not true, you are called to image your father to the watching world. This possibility would be impossible, 
but God has given you something that the Old Testament never realized and only had glimpses of, and that is the indwelling of the Spirit to make you become what God has called you to be. You have value and purpose and identity that is yours because of your identity with Jesus Christ. You don't need to look for your identity in your wealth or your beauty or your religious acts or your work or whatever else you may think is important. Your identity is in Jesus and is his his perfection for being the perfect man. You are more wicked, Tim Keller says, than you could ever possibly imagine, and yet simultaneously you are more loved and accepted than you could ever possibly dream of all because of your identity in Jesus Christ. And because of your sonship in Christ, in God, because of your identity with Christ, you have an inheritance that is yours, that is awaiting for you. You know, as people, we don't think much about inheritances anymore because most of us, thanks to the government and taxes, don't have anything to give to our kids anyway. But it would be foolish for us in the world's eyes, to give what we do have to someone that is not our own. Years ago, there was a famous millionaire who left millions of dollars to her dog. The dog died recently. I don't know what happened to the money. It would be nice if they would pass it on to somebody who could actually use it. But the son receives the inheritance. And you and I, when we come to faith in Christ, we get now to be participants in something that wasn't ours. We come into something that was for somebody else, and all of a sudden God invites the table and says, hey, you're, you're one of us now. We, we, we're going to share this with you. It is my desire to lavish you with blessings and joy and eternal bliss, not because of anything you do, but because of your identity with my really special son over here. The Apostle Peter says that we were made to become like Christ, to become images of Christ. You are categorically different because of your identity with Christ. You are a walking image of the gospel. You are a living, breathing image of the gospel. How you live does not save you. That is absolutely true, but how you live absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. You are to love others differently than the world loves. You are to forgive others differently than the world does. You are to seek others good. You're to be honest. You're to not gossip. You're to not lie. You're to not steal. You're to be different than the world, not because you're trying to please God, but because your desire is to be like Jesus. That is your calling as a son, to be like him. But not only are you God's son, Ephesians 2 tells us we are also now part of God's kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as a citizen of any kingdom, you have a civic responsibility and a civic calling. Your civic responsibility as part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that you are subject to his law. You are to come by faith daily to the word of God, to be nurtured in his word, and to obey the word of Christ. Like Jesus, not like Adam, we are to listen, to hear, to obey, to trust, and to follow the word of our king. Every single word. We have problems with that sometimes in our churches because we like to differentiate between certain words. Some of us have red letter Bibles, and so we like to differentiate between Jesus' words and Paul's words, or between Jesus' words and Moses' words. All scripture is breathed by the Spirit of God. Moses' words have the same weight as Paul's words, and Paul's words have the same weight as Jesus' words. So so people who would like to argue and say, well, Jesus never spoke about certain issues in the New Testament. That's sure he didn't. But Paul did with the authority of Jesus Christ. 
We take every single word that's here. All of it are the words of our king. We have a special exhortation from our king to listen and to heed those things. Bonhoeffer says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've been reading a, a, a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, very interesting, um, by uh, Eric Metexas. Um, and Bonhoeffer says, only the believer is obedient. And only he who obeys believes. It's easy to claim the name of Christ. It's easy to say, I know Jesus and he's the Son of God. And those are great things. But that in and of itself means nothing without the faithful, fruitful obedience of a life that is changed by the power of the Spirit to hear his words. But you also have a calling, and your calling as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is to advance God's presence and God's glory in this world. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you advance his kingdom and his glory and his presence by the advance of the gospel. Everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the gospel is believed, the kingdom of God comes upon them. The kingdom is there amidst those people because where God is, the kingdom is. You're given the challenge of being on God's mission. So you're to put aside your own wants, your own wills, your own desires, your own pursuits to pursue the mission of God because this is God's kingdom. And what is the mission of God? Our church in, in South Carolina likes to say it this way. The mission of God is to see every man, woman, and child have the repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your mission. That is your purpose, the missio day. It's not for full-time pastors. It's not for full-time evangelists. It's not for missionaries. It's not for really spiritual people. The mission of God to advance the gospel is your mission because you are part of the kingdom of God. If you're waiting for your pastors and for your elders to take the gospel to Lake Grove, then you are failing as citizens of the kingdom of God. It is your calling. It is your purpose. It is your mission. If you are a follower of Christ, that is where you are to be doing, right where you are. In your neighborhoods, at your job, in your homes, when you're out eating dinner. You know, as, as a pastor, I know that I can spend my entire work week in which I at times can literally never see a lost person. But most of you see lost people everywhere you go. Lost people all around you who are deathly in need of the gospel and who we walk right on by and think that somebody else is going to take up the cause of Christ. As men, women, and children come to faith in Jesus Christ, the glory of God advances, the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of Satan feels the ground shake beneath its feet by all of the celebration in heaven every time a sinner confesses the name of Christ. And you get to participate in that. But not only are you a citizen, you're also a prince. Hebrews 2.12 says that we're brothers of Jesus. Jesus is a king, that makes me a prince. You know, when, when the, uh, the prince and, and the, uh, uh, the uh, woman, Kate Middleton, were getting married, everybody was infatuated with royalty. I think it's funny because we're in a country that hates royalty. I mean, we, we, we despise the idea of kings, and yet we were infatuated and glued to our TV screens at 7 in the morning on a, uh, what, on a Friday uh, to watch something that none of us could care less about at any other time of the year. But something about it, we just get drawn to it. And most all of us would love to be that guy or that woman. And yet in Christ, you're already better than that guy 
because you're already a part of a regal and royal status that is yours in Christ. Jewish kings were to be students of the law of God. And you, likewise, as a prince in the kingdom of God, you are to be a student of the word of God. You are to study and to hear and to remember and to believe and to obey the word of God. What Adam did not do in the garden, you are called to do. The spirit of God dwelling in you, God's word is crucial to your daily life. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true Israel, remembered and believed and obeyed God's word. He ruled as a king by the word of God. Do you come by faith daily to the word of God? Knowing that it is the very food and bread and life that you need. It's how you're strengthened. It's how the presence of God grows in your life as you, as you immerse yourself in the word of God. And you will be prepared and ready to fulfill your task of spreading the gospel and the presence of God by the spirit of God as you read the word of God. As you do that, the Spirit of God increases both in you and in the world, and the glory of God continues to fill the earth just as God said it would. But not only are you a a prince, and not only are you a participant in this kingdom and a son of God, you, I think most importantly, you are part of a priesthood. Hebrews and 1 Peter both point us to that direction. And as part of a priesthood, we have something special. Priests are to pray. All believers are part of a covenant priesthood and we're to offer up prayers to the spiritual temple of God in heaven where God sits and where Jesus is also with him. Right now, you stand, the writer of Hebrews says, today in this place, you stand in the New Testament equivalent of the holy place. Do do you realize how close you are to the presence of God? Not because you're in these walls. These walls could fall down tomorrow, and this doesn't matter, but it's because of the body of Christ that you are standing in the New Testament equivalent of the holy place. You are closer to God in Jesus Christ, Hebrews says, than any of the Israelites ever were. And the writer of Hebrews says that we get to come boldly and confidently to the throne room of grace. They came trembling at the mountain. They wouldn't, couldn't even come close. And we get to walk into the very presence of Jesus Christ. And as Peter reminds us, we pray as exiled Israelites for the Messiah to return, for the glory of God to fill the earth. The Old Testament said that this day would come where Gentile believers would be brought in to the worship and the glory of God. Isaiah 56 says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. They were talking about you. That's your identity because of Christ. But not only are we to pray as a special priesthood, we're also to protect. We are to keep order and peace in the spiritual sanctuary of God, the body of Christ. You as a priest are to be promoting unity among the brothers in your church. You're to be loving people, putting away falsehood, putting away gossip, putting away bickering, putting away lying, learning how to forgive and love one another despite the differences that there may be. 
That's your responsibility to keep out the presence of that evil serpent that wants to come in and to seek and to destroy and to devour the people of God. We do that as we learn God's word, as we study it, as we meditate on it, but it goes beyond our churches. But to every sphere of our lives, your calling is to keep your homes, your workplaces, any place you may be, holy and free from the presence of the evil one. That's hard. That is hard work. But we're to keep things out of the spiritual sanctuary that are unclean. We're also to keep things out by protecting the flock. Through the leaders of your church protecting you, through the leaders of the church teaching you, admonishing you in God's word, helping you to know what the will of God is, at times to lead like Jesus does, which is to lead uh, uh, passively and graciously, and then other times to lead with authority and power. Sometimes Jesus let the disciples lead themselves astray. And yet at times when Peter said to him, you will not go to the cross, he didn't lead passively there. He used very emphatic words and said, get behind me, Satan. He led with authority and with power, recognizing that God's word and God's mission is of the utmost importance. But we're also doing this in our homes. You are priests in your homes, fathers. You, you are to protect your homes. How many of you are unknowingly or naively letting in an ancient evil serpent to slither around your house under your watchful eye because you are not being mindful of the unclean things that are there. We're to perform sacrifices. Paul tells us that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Revelation says our prayers are sacrifices. Jesus was an example of presenting his body as a sacrifice. We're to do likewise. We're to hear from God. You know, one of the most common problems in the church today is that in, in the Protestant church, we're, we're still protesting things as we move away from the Catholic church. But one of the things that we've adopted, we've gone back to doing, is we've gone back to the old priestly model. Is that we, we treat our pastors as our priests. So therefore, some of us never never engage the word of God until we come here and let the pastor do it for us. We get our quick Jesus fix and then we go back out the door and we go back to our regular living. Your pastors are not your priests. They're great men. They, they teach you the word well and boldly and confidently. But you have the spirit of God which allows you to read the word of God on your own and in clarity, understand what it says and to apply it to your life and to do it. Please get me wrong. I'm not suggesting you stay home from church uh, like others have suggested and that we don't need this place. Oh, we do, absolutely. This is the best part of your week. But this is not the only place where you should be hearing from God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you hear God every day where you are as you read and study his word. Study it. Talk to others with it. Embrace it. Debate over it. Love it like the psalmist does. And lastly, you're to pursue God's expanding presence in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on to say that he thought it was a time for the Lordship of Jesus Christ back during World War II to move past Sunday mornings and churches and into the whole world. 
And yet I still think we're struggling still today with what Bonhoeffer struggled with, and that is that we still keep the lordship of Jesus cramped up within our four walls. We, we don't like to take the gospel outside of these places. We like to try to bring everything here as if this is the pinnacle, this is what everybody needs. People need the gospel. And the times have changed. People aren't coming to the church to look for answers anymore. People aren't coming to the church and saying, hey, I have problems, come help me. They have problems, but they're looking at all other places. And so it's our calling and responsibility to pursue them and to take the gospel to them. If you're waiting for them to come here, you're going to wait a long time. You and I as priests, we are mediators between God and the world because we have the gospel. And the Spirit has called us to take the gospel and then to let God do the rest of the work. Isn't that nice that you don't have to convert people? You don't have to change their minds? It's not your calling to make them like Christ. It's your calling to give them the word and to let the word of God penetrate their hearts and let the spirit of God move in them and to save them. In Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses um, of chapter 11 are offering sacrifices, the text says, by going to the unbelieving world and they are rejected and killed and in apparent failure, they are advancing the mission of God. How are you reaching lost people? How are you reaching the lost in Lake Grove for the glory of God? How are you reaching the five-mile radius around your church? There are millions of people on Long Island. You can't reach everybody. How are you reaching the two or 300,000 that are within a stone's throw of this building? The streets that are running with children the schools that are, that are busting at the seams with life. How are you reaching those people right here? Sometimes we, we have the attitude of, of the pastor that David Platt visited uh, one time that he wrote about in his book, Radical, where he went to talk about missions, and the pastor, after his sermon, stood up. I kid you not, this is what David Platt says. The pastor stood up and said, we're going to take an offering. And he said, just like I told you before, if we don't get enough offering in this offering plate to support our missionaries, I am going to pray that God will send your children to the mission field as a punishment to you because we aren't sending enough money to the mission field. The problem is that a lot of us have reduced our, our advancement of God's kingdom to giving of money. Giving of money is great. But if all you do is put $100 or $1,000 or a $1 million in an offering plate and then detach yourself from the rest of your calling as agents of the gospel, you are doing nothing but pharisaical work. You are called to reach the nations, and the nations, believe it or not, are here outside your back door. How are you reaching lost people? Your boss, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends your family, who if they died today would step into hell despite what Rob Bell says. Some of you, you're not living in light of your identity. You're struggling. You're idle. You're passive. And Scripture warns you that the evidence of a genuine faith in Jesus Christ is a life that is growing in righteousness and becoming like Jesus and pursuing His agenda. So I want you to be encouraged by the words of Scripture today and I want you to be motivated by the Spirit of God to start acting like a son and a daughter of God. To stop being idle. Some of you, though, are timid. You're not obeying God's word because you're a little scared. 
And I want to remind you what, what Joshua said to the nation of Israel and what I think Jesus continues to say to you today through the Spirit, to be strong and courageous. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is within you. He will equip you with every good work that you need. Trust His Word. Obey His Word. Obey with confidence. Don't fear man. What can man do to you? So man takes your life. You step into eternity with Jesus. I mean, I think it's a pretty fair trade-off. Christ will not harm you. Christ will not abandon you. And he says to you to press on. And some of you are just weak. You're, you're not obeying Jesus Christ because you lack spiritual maturity. You're a father that doesn't know how to lead because you lack spiritual vibrancy. And I want you to read the word. And I want you again see the promises of God. And see what God has done for you and see what awaits for you in Jesus Christ. And learn from other people. Learn from those around you. Your salvation is not dependent on being these things. You are these things. You are saved from sin, and thus you are free to live like a son and to live like a daughter. Tim Keller asks, if you and your church were to disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, would anyone in the unbelieving community around you notice that you were gone? And if they did even notice, would they say that they were actually glad that you were gone, or gee, we might miss them a little. Or worse yet, is the world a better place because you're gone? If you're living your identity as a son of God in this world, they will notice if you're gone. In fact, they'll notice you're here because you will present a picture of the kingdom of God that is so different that they will want to be knocking on the doors of your house to say, how do I get what you have? How do I have the joy and the happiness of life that you have? How do I learn to forgive and love and be free the way that you are? I'm not a good gardener. I planted a bush in my house, and, and it died so quick. No matter how much I watered it, no matter how much I, I did anything to it, it was dead. I'm also not a very smart gardener because I planted it in the wrong place. Typically, plants need sun. And I was planting it right in the front of my house where all the shade would overcome it. Your church will not bear fruit. You will not bear fruit as an agent of the gospel unless you are out of the shadow of the world and firmly planted in the direct sunlight of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, your objective to see the earth filled with the glory of God will begin to take shape and you will start to see what Habakkuk says will happen come true. For the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Christ we are adopted and we are now sons of God and brothers of Jesus. He is a king and we're now restored as princes in his kingdom. He is a priest and he, now we are part of a royal priesthood. He is a son of God and we are sons of God. He lives forever and we live forever. You're more than a fool. All because Jesus was made to be a fool for you. So let's stop living like the world and start being who God made us to be for his glory. Because our entire life and our entire future is found in Jesus Christ. And today and for eternity, we will sing with all the saints of heaven, Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the power of the gospel that has saved wicked sinners. We thank you how you have loved us and called us to be your own. And we pray that you might today continue to make us into who you called us to be. Help us to fulfill and to be what you've called us as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as teenagers, as students, wherever you've placed us. May we bring you glory for Jesus' sake. In Christ's name, amen. Just sing one last song called All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, but I
Christ. And we pray that as we leave now, that you would begin to shape and make us into the image of Jesus for his glory, for your glory, for eternity's sake. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.